Please open your Bibles to the book of Amos, Prophecy of Amos. Tonight we'll have the joy of starting a new study of a new book in God's Word. This is on page 970 if you're using the Pew Bible. Tonight's text will be Amos chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Give ear now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus far is the reading of God's word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the thrill that it is to start a study of a new book. And we thank you for your servant, the prophet Amos, and the way in which he courageously ministered to a wayward people. And I pray for this congregation, that as we study the words that you sent so long ago, that you would cause us to heed his warnings, that you would cause us to hear the roaring lion from Zion, and that we might be saved, and that for those who are saved, that we might be kept secure for the coming day of the Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Don't judge a book by its cover, or so the expression goes. We don't know the exact origin of this phrase, but its principle is clear enough. Do not judge the worth or the value of something merely by looking on the externals. This phrase is what we might call a common grace insight. That is a truth that is not written expressly in the Bible, but one can learn because it is true and it is from God. And it agrees with many other passages of Scripture. For example, we've been reading 1 Samuel in the morning worship services, and we have King Saul who is tall and handsome, and so the people flock to him. And the Lord would rebuke his people in 1 Samuel 16, 7, saying, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We find the same principle in the teachings of our Lord Jesus. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. John 7, 24. And I bring all that up because this principle of not judging a book by its cover will be an important one as we study the book of Amos. We must not make the mistake of judging this book by its cover. As you know, Amos is part of a section of Scripture in the Old Testament that's called the Minor Prophets, a more frustrating and misleading name for a section of God's Word would be hard to imagine. I trust that you have seen in our study of the prophet Joel that there is nothing minor about the significance of what these men have to say. There is nothing, they are in no way less inspired or less important than what are commonly styled the major prophets. The designation between major and minor prophets has more to do with length than anything. 
Uh, Just for your consideration, if you took all 12 of what are generally called the minor prophets and you added them up, the major prophet Isaiah is still a little bit longer than the other 12 added together. Perhaps it is because of the brevity of these books that so many in the church today are largely unaware of them, don't take much interest in them. But this was not the case for the ancient church. This was not the case for the earliest days of the church. You'll recall in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches the first sermon of the New Testament era of the church, he takes from his his text the minor prophets, specifically Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Or then a few years later, when there's the first major controversy in the Christian church, what are we to do with the Gentiles? They summon all of the apostles and all of the elders, and they hash it out in Jerusalem. And what settles the day is what should always settle the day in such a gathering of the Lord's elders. That is the clear teaching of God's word. And the apostle James stands up and says, Brothers, this accords with what God has spoken. And he quotes from the minor prophets, specifically Amos chapter 9. It is therefore a great sadness that to so many in the church, the minor prophets are a portion of the canon that is functionally closed. One of my goals in continuing to preach through these books is that we might recover them in the life of the church. They speak to a people who had once experienced great privilege and great blessing from God, but had lost it because they squandered it, distracted by the things of the world. They speak clearly and plainly about the sins of the surrounding culture, and they pull no punches when addressing the sins of God's people. They sound the alarm with both great volume and clarity as to what awaits those who persist in their sin, namely eternal destruction at the day of the Lord. We saw this many times in our study of Joel. And they also leave us with hope. They give hope to those who have ears to hear. Not a hope of return to some former earthly glory, but they give a hope of eschatological glory. They give a hope of the world to come when all things will be made new. And it's for all of those reasons that I believe these so-called minor prophets have much to say to the 21st century church in the West. And tonight we will give careful consideration to what you might call the prologue of Amos in verses 1 to 2. Uh, Amos 1 to 2 is similar to how the Apostle John would begin his gospel. In the opening verses, he sows seeds for themes that he will develop as the book progresses. Amos does something very similar. We see in our passage a lion roaring from Zion, and this theme will be revisited in chapter 3. We see language that references uh, withering of fields. That will come up again in chapter 4. We note the mourning of the shepherd's pastures, and that will come up again in 5, 8, and 9. And these locations that are mentioned, Zion and Jerusalem and Carmel, will all also appear once again in chapter 9. In this way, Amos is, is setting up the whole book for us. And tonight, as we look at these opening verses, we're going to look at it under three headings. The prophet in the first part of verse 1, the people in the second part of verse 1, and finally the roaring lion in verse 2. The prophet, the people, and the roaring lion. There is more information that is given to us about the prophet Amos and his context than any other of the writing prophets. 
Uh, One scholar called verse 1 the most complete superscription to be found in all of prophetic literature. I think he's correct about that. And given its distinctiveness, this has caused many critical scholars to question whether or not Amos actually wrote these opening verses. Its uniqueness is not only seen in the depth of information that he provides, but it's also seen in the structure. You see the very first words are the words of Amos. Now, that is not the way an Old Testament prophetic book typically begins. Typically, it would begin the word of the Lord that came to Hosea or Joel or insert prophet's name here. This is deemed enough by most critical scholars and commentators to argue that the introduction of the book is not original. However, if we're going to suppose that somebody came along later and edited Amos's work, what we would expect to find is that they had smoothed it out, made it match. And so in that way, the distinctiveness, the uniqueness of it is actually an argument for its authenticity, not an argument against it. And there are at least three other reasons that we can reject this assertion that Amos's prologue is not original. First, as we'll see in a moment, Amos is writing remarkably early. He is very likely the first of the writing prophets. Now that term writing prophet is just designed to distinguish a, a prophet of God for whom we have a book in our Bible, right? The writing prophets are Isaiah on, as, as distinct from perhaps uh, Nathan, the prophet who would come to King David after his sin with Bathsheba. He was a prophet of, prophet of God. He spoke the word of God, but he did not write. Or Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings. These would be prophets who were not writing prophets. Amos, being likely the first of the writing prophets, is writing before there's any established formula to go by. And so we should not uh, hold him to that. Secondly, while we can acknowledge that there is a standard opening formula for a prophetic book, the word of the Lord that came to, insert prophet's name here, that practice is not universal. There are many other Old Testament prophets that don't begin that way. Jonah does not begin that way. Ezekiel does not begin that way. Daniel does not begin that way. So while there is a standard, it is not a universal standard. And then third and finally, we can dismiss this assertion that this, these verses are not original because they're in all of our best and oldest Hebrew manuscripts. There is no tangible evidence of it creeping in at a later time. It has always been there. Now, these words, it begins with the words of Amos, and that's also telling us, many scholars think, and I think correctly, that what we have primarily in the book of Amos, is a collection of his sermons. Amos was a prolific preacher, but he was a short-lived preacher. Most scholars think this ministry was about a year in duration. And so what he's done is he's compiled uh, the meat of his preaching ministry for us in these words. Now, what's interesting also is he says these are the words that he saw. That may sound a strange way for us to describe words. We don't see words, we hear words. But this is not an uncommon way for prophets to describe their revelation that they, see, that they hear or that they receive from God. This is likely the explanation behind that strange parenthetical comment we heard several weeks ago in our reading of 1 Samuel chapter 9 when Saul is looking for Samuel and he's looking for the seer and there's this parenthetical comment for today's prophet was formerly called a seer because they often described their revelation as something that they had seen. And also, given the fact that chapter 7 records several visions of Amos, he's also likely foreshadowing that, that his book is a collection of both his sermons and of his visions that he has preserved for God's people. 
But who is Amos? And why should we regard his prophecy some 3,000 years later? Well, Amos, compared to some other prophets, specifically Joel, we know a lot about. First of all, we read in verse 1 that he was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Uh, the, the town of Tekoa is going to be significant for our interpretation in two ways. First of all, Tekoa was established under Rehoboam as a military town around 920 B.C. And we read of that in Second Chronicles 11. And it would continue as such down through Jehoshaphat in 860 B.C. and all the way down to Uzziah at the time of Amos. And this is important because it would explain how a shepherd is so familiar with the international relations that he's going to address, specifically, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week. It explains how he's so familiar with, with, with all the international activity that's going on. But secondly, and more importantly, Tekoa is located 10 to 12 miles south of Jerusalem. What that means is that Amos is a prophet from the southern kingdom. But he has been sent to the northern kingdom. These are the words that he saw concerning Israel. And that's immediately going to create some tension between Amos and his audience. You may recall that after the reign of Solomon, Rehoboam, his son, gets some bad advice, some bad counsel from his young friends that results in a revolt against him. And the northern tribes, all ten of them, split off. And they go under Jeroboam I, and they never reunite. We live in a country where we know what it's like to have uh, the southern part of the country and the northern part of the country not necessarily see eye to eye. But Israel and Judah were so much further apart than we could ever imagine. We had one civil war and were shortly thereafter reconciled. They had several and never reconciled. They never reunited. There were always tensions between the between the peoples. Yes, they would work together sometimes for political reasons, but there was always a rivalry and a friction there. It's likely that many in the northern kingdom would have rejected Amos as soon as he began to speak, and they heard that he had a Judean accent. But the blemishes to his metaphorical, the metaphorical cover of his book abound because we read that by profession he was a shepherd. And there's debate about whether he was a a lowly shepherd in the fields or if he was a sheep breeder that had some a little bit more financial means, something akin to um, we're asking, was he a, a introductory mechanic or did he own the auto shop? But the question in and of itself obscures the point. The point is it's a blue collar job that's not likely to be highly regarded by the people he's going to preach to. That's the point that's being made here. And Amos amplifies that in his own autobiographical statement in chapter 7, verse 14, where he says, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. In other words, Amos means to communicate that he is a man of no renown. He's from the wrong country. He has the wrong job. And he has no credentials of which to speak when he goes to this northern kingdom. In other words, he had every reason to say no to the call of God on his life. Other prophets had tried it before. Remember Jonah? I want you to go to Nineveh. And he goes to Tarshish. He goes the exact other way. You remember one of the earliest prophets, perhaps the greatest prophet before the coming of our Lord Jesus, Moses. Tries to avoid his commissioning, saying, Lord, I don't speak well. I can't do this. Please send someone else. Amos does no such thing. 
he reminds me of the great church father Ambrose. Ambrose was a Roman official, and one day in the town that he was presiding over, there was a great debate within the local church over who was going to be the next bishop. And there was much heat and much friction, much tension over this decision, and the church was radically divided. And so they dispatched Ambrose that he might cool the tensions, that that level heads might prevail, and that they might avoid a riot in the city. And as politicians do, he begins speaking in a very charming and persuasive way. And the next thing you know, all of these warring factions, they have settled on who will be the next bishop. Ambrose. Ambrose was petrified of this call on his life. But when they rallied around him, despite the fact that he had no formal training and no credentials for the job, he submitted to what he perceived to be God's call on his life, and he got to work. In a later reflection, he would write, I do not claim for myself the glory of the apostles, nor the grace of the prophets, nor the virtue of the evangelists, nor the cautious care of the pastors. I only desire to attain to that care and diligence in the sacred writings which the apostle has placed last among the duties of his saints. And this very thing I desire, so that in the endeavor to teach, I may be able to learn. He desired, he got to work to learn so that he could teach. He didn't have the skills, so he developed them because God had plainly called him to the task. And God still uses people just like that. Just like that. If I could say, especially to the young children who are here tonight, it was such a delight, such a joy to sit in the pew, and I had a front row seat, and listen to you all sing a setting of Psalm 100, and listen to you all sing another setting of Psalm 119. Such a joy for us as adults to hear that from you. Even though you aren't quite sure everything that's going on, even though there may be some gaps in knowledge because the words that you are speaking are spirit and life. They're the words of the living God and those words have power. And so what I would encourage you young people to do is to memorize your Bible verses, memorize your catechism, learn what they mean, and then share that with others just like Amos did. This is also true for adults in our congregation. Yes, it is God's normative pattern to use men in his pulpit to preach and teach his word who have seminary training and have been investigated and examined by the presbytery. But that process is not necessary for an individual to be able to speak words of truth to those around them. Teaching the Bible, admonishing with the Bible, encouraging one another with the Bible is not to be limited to the pulpit. It's also the role of Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders, mothers and fathers in family worship, or just friends who might get a concerned call from someone in the middle of the night, and you have the chance to encourage them. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord cares for you. He sees, he knows, and share truth from God's word. So many will pass on these opportunities because they feel unqualified. And I say to you that if you wait until you feel fully qualified to accurately handle all of God's word, you will never do it. Steward well what you have been given. Amos is also an encouragement to us in how to engage the world around us. Remember, he has the wrong background for this. And we live in a day and a time where we are told you may not have an opinion on race issues unless you have a certain ethnicity. You may not have an opinion on the evils of abortion unless you have a particular gender. 
You may not have an opinion on X unless you are Y. Now, the world is, of course, lying when they say that because as soon as you have someone that meets their credentials that still disagrees with them, that one will be silenced too. But the point is, Amos tells us, Amos shows us that you can still speak the word of God boldly as you ought to speak. Yes, we want to speak the truth seasonably and without malice. And yes, we want to do it with gentleness and respect. But we take heart in knowing that the truth is not subject to the sensitivities of our hearers. Truth is subject to the revealed word of God. Let us move on then and consider those who would hear the words of Amos, his original hearing audience. He received this commission to preach God's word concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This information is incredibly helpful in dating when Amos wrote his prophecy, and when we can ascertain the date, we'll know a lot more about the culture at the time of that. Uh, Uzziah reigned from 792 to 740 B.C., and Jeroboam II reigned from 793 to 753 B.C. And so there's a significant overlap in the, the reigns of these two men of about 40 years. And that in and of itself is pretty precise for an ancient book. But we can get even closer because Amos says it was two years before the earthquake. Now, archaeologists have found a sign of a severe earthquake during the excavation of Hazor with a proposed date of 765 to 760 B.C. And so that's why most scholars would date the writing of Amos somewhere in that range of 765 to 760. And we know three very important things about the culture of Israel at that time, really the culture of Israel and Judah. The first is that they were incredibly secure from a military standpoint. Under both of these kings, Judah and Israel experienced significant acquisition of land. They grew leaps and bounds. Betts summarizes, Amos lived in a time of military superiority. God blessed Israel's military so much that Israel expanded its borders in the north all the way to Hamath and Damascus, and in the south as far as the Dead Sea and the Transjordan. Uzziah raised an army that numbered more than 300,000 men, and he launched attacks against enemies in every direction, and he was successful in all of them. So that by this point, both the northern and southern kingdoms had, had conquered as much land as they had ever had. They had almost completely reestablished the Solomonic Golden Era borders. So they're doing well. It's a time of peace and prosperity. And this also leads to the second thing. They're doing very well financially. They're in a time of unprecedented financial blessing. This is particularly true of the northern kingdoms. As we'll see in chapter 3, many of these people had seasonal homes. They're living well. A summer home and a winter home. Everything is going great. And it's likely that many in that day interpreted this prosperity as a sign of God's favor upon them. They were inferring from the external material blessing that the internal must be doing just fine. They were judging that book by its cover. They would say something like, I am very blessed. That means God is pleased with me. That's their logic. When in reality, God is not pleased with them at all. In fact, he is so displeased that he sends the prophet Amos. And I trust you know your Bible well enough to know that when a prophet shows up on the scene, it is never to say, you're doing great, keep it up. He sends them Amos, 
And what a difficult ministry Amos is going to have. Ministering to secure, wealthy people. Our Lord Jesus said how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 23 and 25. So we know based on the dating that these people are secure that they're wealthy, and there's one other thing we know about them. They are very religious. They are very religious. Religious people are by far the hardest to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially when that religion in some way imitates biblical Christianity. Paul would describe uh, the, the Jews of his day as them who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 10, 2-3. And the same could be said today of those in the Roman Catholic Church or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. I have often said the, the best deceit that the devil has to convince one that they do not need Jesus is to convince them that they already have him. And this is something similar to what Amos is dealing with. Because, because the northern kingdom, they had not totally apostatized from Yahweh. They had not totally done away with the worship of the living and true God. No, what they had done was far worse than that. They had mixed the worship of the true God with false gods. They took the parts of the Old Testament that they liked, or at least the parts that they thought they liked, and, and mixed it in with other pagan philosophies and religions. And mixing the worship of the true covenant Lord with false gods is akin to pretending fidelity to your spouse while harboring feelings for another. This this worship, it's, it's, it's an abomination. It's adultery in God's sight. And it's not just pagan philosophies that can creep in and corrupt the worship of the living and true God. It's any and every idol of the age. In our age, it's finances for some. For others, it's entertainment. Others still, it's some form of social influence. And what happens as as we make, make idols of these things is it becomes possible for a person to be a member of a good church, perhaps even this church, and see no need in their own life for personal growth and holiness to attend the worship of God as as checking a box and then going right back to the world and living for the pursuit of those false gods. As far as they can see, everything's going well, so there's no desire to change, no desire to die to sin and to live for righteousness, no desire to strive after that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. God does not play games. And if that describes you here tonight, I would warn you that that security, that peace that you think you have, those are the very same things that the nation of Israel was trusting in. And within 40 years of Amos' ministry to them, within the span of one generation in 722 B.C., it all came crashing down. All their finances, all their security, all their religiosity, all of it, the whole nation, gone. And if that can happen to a nation of God's covenant people, it can happen to you.
The words of Amos need to be heeded in our day. Because they are not merely the words of Amos. They are the words of the living and true God who roars from Zion. Daniel Carroll writes, He, Yahweh, is the ultimate focus of the message of the prophet. He is the primary actor in the oracles and visions. The the hymnic passages highlight God's power and the visions reveal His demanding relationship with Israel. Yahweh will not tolerate worship or a socioeconomic and political world that uses His name for its own ends. He will not be mocked. Yahweh will not tolerate rivals, disobedience, or misrepresentation. He is the divine lion. He is the incomparable and and, and omnipotent sovereign king. In in verse 2, we see him depicted as the roaring lion. We know well the words of the author of Hebrews that says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. We might say here that it is also sharper and more pointed than any lion's fang. This roar is intended primarily to communicate imminent judgment. Amos will ask rhetorically in chapter 3, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The implied answer is, of course, no, he does not. And so what this roar is is intended to signify to those who hear is that the lion is calling out to you. You are on a path that if you do not turn back, if you continue down it, you will be devoured like prey for a lion. The Lord is angry with sin, and He will avenge every wicked deed that happens on His earth. And the roaring lion certainly portrays that imminent judgment. But we do not want to make the mistake of understanding this roar is coming from one who is eager to pour out the judgment. The, the word for roar here, it also has the sense of sorrow mixed in. One lexicon uh, says that it can, uh, it, can under, it can be understood to be making a guttural cry of anguish. And it is used that way in the Old Testament. It's used that way in Psalm 38 and verse 8 where the psalmist writes, I groan because of the tumult of my heart. This is important for us to keep in mind as we read this book, as we press on in our study, that God is, yes, glorified in the fact of His judgment, And he takes great pleasure in his glory as the just judge against sin. But he does not take vindictive personal enjoyment in the act of punishment itself. He would say in Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? O house of Israel, he pleads with them. Or elsewhere, he says in Hosea 11.8, How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you realize that that is true for you as well? That is true for you as well? You may be here tonight and suffering some manner of trial. Not every trial is a direct retribution for sin, but some are. And if you are here tonight, and, and, and the Lord is chastening you as a son whom he loves, know 
that he is not taking joy in your sufferings and hardships. He's not out to get you through them. This is not fun for him. Rather, he is pleading with you through that trial, through your sufferings, that you might abandon your evil ways and find life in him. I'm still a relatively young parent. I believe my daughter was one of the youngest ones up there tonight. But I have had to administer my fair share of fatherly discipline. And I've had to issue a number of corrective warnings that if this does not improve, X, Y, and Z will happen. But I do not take joy in the threat. And I do not take joy in carrying out the act. But I do it so that my children might learn that the way of the transgressor is hard. And that they might be spared of far worse consequences once they're no longer under my care, once they're out of my house. If they do not turn from their sin now, if they do not seek to rule over the sin now, it will rule over them and destroy them. And so I chasten them now. Similarly, the Lord, as the perfect Heavenly Father, warns of judgment. And he does so in the hopes that his creatures might abandon the futility of the world and find salvation and everlasting life in him. Both the threat and the initial punishment are designed to spare the covenant people from far greater consequences later in life and in the world to come. That is why the Lord roars from Zion rather than snuff them out immediately. And the next line tells us that he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The word utters here could also, I would think, better be translated as thunders his voice from Jerusalem. The word speaks of the ominous nature of God's judgment. Perhaps some of you enjoy the sound of a thunderstorm in a summer afternoon. I know that I'll often use a recording of thunderstorms as white noise to help sleep. But this isn't pleasant, soothing. No, this is, this is that thunder that shakes the house in the middle of the night. This is that loud crack that causes you to shoot up in your bed after, out of the deadest of sleeps. Heart racing. That is what the Lord is doing as His voice thunders from Jerusalem. It's designed to strike fear into the hearts of those who do not know Him and to lead them to repent and return to the Lord. We read in the latter portion of verse 2 the response that we see, at least in this passage, of the created order. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The implication is clear. Under the threat of impending judgment, creation itself begins to groan and to waste away. And the Scripture will often point out the fact that inanimate objects and, and dumb animals always respond appropriately to the Lord. It is only the arrogant, sinful, prideful man who refuses to respond or pretends that we did not hear him when he spoke so clearly. That is not to say that men who hear the roar and the thunder ought to mourn and waste away and that be the end of it. Notice that he takes care twice in this passage to say the Lord is calling from Zion. The Lord is calling from Jerusalem. And he's calling up to the northern kingdom. Even in the call, it's an invitation to say, I'm not there. Those golden calves that Jeroboam erected, that's not me. 
They have no power. They cannot protect you. They cannot save you. Come back to Zion. Come back to Jerusalem. The northern kingdom will be destroyed. That much is sure. But the people do not have to be. They can seek the Lord and live. And the reference here to Carmel, it's not arbitrary, but it's to illustrate that very point. As my uh, Old Testament professor Michael McKelvey said in his commentary on this passage, the mention of the top of Carmel is in keeping with the rebuke of the idolatrous northern kingdom. Since it it was at Carmel and the northern kingdom that Elijah defeated the priests of Baal during the reign of Ahaz. You recall before Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. He called to the people and he asked them a question. He says, how long will you limp between two positions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And Elijah defeats the false prophets at the top of the mountain and he slaughters the prophets. But he leaves the people to wrestle with the fact that there's the living and true God that they can come to and to know that what happened to those false prophets is what awaits those who will not come. The purpose was to demonstrate that Yahweh is the true God, the only God, and to call the people to follow Him. And if we only hear the roar of the lion from Zion as, as, a, as an announcement of coming judgment, and we do not hear it as the alarm warning that we might flee the wrath to come, we are not judging with right judgment. And so I say to you tonight, if you hear the Lord roaring in His Word, do not judge only on the surface, but know that today is the day of salvation. And you can call on His name for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps the best caution against judging a book by its cover is the lion who roars himself. We know that it is the Lord Jesus who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we know that 2,000 years ago that the true light that brings light to everyone came into the world. And He came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. He was prophesied in Isaiah as one who had no form or majesty that we should look on Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. And like Amos, He was a lowly shepherd, but a good shepherd who came to preach the need for repentance to a people who had other designs and other plans. We heard in the morning sermon this morning that they were hoping for a military Messiah to deliver them from the occupation of the Romans. And he said, no, I've come to deliver you from a far greater enemy than that. I've come to deliver you from your sin. And they would not hear. And also, like Amos Our Lord Jesus regularly befuddled the religious leaders of his day with his lack of formal education. They would ask questions like, where did he get this wisdom? Is not this the carpenter's son? Or how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And yet, when he spoke, those who had ears to hear received him gladly for he spoke as one who had authority. And when those in power could no longer stand to hear the words of Amos, they banished him from Israel. They sent him packing. And when when those in authority could no longer bear the preaching of the Lord Jesus, they crucified him. 
and they thought they had won. After all, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What they did not realize is that while by all external appearances it looked like the Lord Jesus was crushed and defeated, yes, his heel was bruised, but so was the head of the serpent. So was the head of the evil one. For in the very act of his crucifixion, he was purchasing and securing pardon for all the people of God, for all of their sins, all of the sins that Amos is going to spend the next nine chapters pleading with them to turn from, was atoned for on the cross of Christ. And that benefit can be yours as well. But you must repent. And you must rise and go to Jesus. And He will embrace you in His arms. In the arms of the dear Lord Jesus There are more than 10,000 charms. And this lion, he still roars in his word preached. And he says to you tonight, that if you stay in your sins, you will die. Why will you not seek the Lord and live? Let us pray. God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your servant, the prophet Amos. We thank you for the many lessons he has already taught us and those we still have to learn. We thank you most of all that he points us to the Lord Jesus, the only hope for a dying world such as ours. And I pray, Father, that your people here might know the lion as the lamb who has brought redemption to them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.